0: Our scripture for this morning is Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. We continue in worship as we turn to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 15 at this point. If you're just starting with us, we've been going through several months in the book of Romans. And and this is a section that particularly Paul, he spends a lot of time on this particular topic. Out of all the topics that Paul could have spent a lot of time on, he sure spends a lot of time on what the life of the body of Christ is to look like, doesn't he? There's a compelling vision, I think, that the world has captured as well in, in many different ways, or is seeking after uh, of this idea of many having one voice. You, you get it in concerts. You know, you have a, a musician or something come, and the, the, the fun and the joy. And, and some of the lasting influence of the experience is that there are so many people here and we're all kind of singing the same thing. We have one voice together. You get it in the, the arena too. You're, you're cheering your team. You're, you're doing the, the school songs or chants. and You're with one voice going after the same kind of thing. It, it reverberates in office spaces, right? Where the office, the business has a particular mission strategy that they get everybody on the same drumbeat. This is what we're after. We're all working in this Direction, or you, you have it in your home. Your home has a, a many voices. If you have more than one, and or if you have one, sometimes it still has many voices, and you're trying to you know, train them in to so like, hey, we need a message here. We need this drumbeat of all these many saying one thing. Sometimes in your home, it's like survive. That's the word. Like we're going for just make it through the day. Um, but we have this compelling vision of of many with one voice. And and Paul has been spending lots of writing, lots of chapters on community. I mean chapters uh, uh, 12 onward have been uh, focused in on the life of these Christians in community and starting in chapter 15 he started put lots of information and detail in this relating to one another in regards to being both weak and strong in that community. And here's what Paul calls for as he kind of rounds out that section here in in chapter 15, 1 through 6. He calls for the strong to so direct their strength, so follow Christ's example, that they foster a community that lives in harmony with one another and glorifies God. And so whether they're strong or weak, that's the goal. The, the goal is that the, the many, whatever they are, wherever they are in the spectrum of strength, that they would together in harmony glorify God. It's been all for this. All the chapter 14 and the sections we've gone through, it's been all for the glory of God. It it hasn't been just for the weak to feel okay in the community of the strong. It hasn't been for the strong to just ease up on some of their views that they're trying to push on other people. It's been all about this being a people that are directing their lives together for the glory of God. And so, Paul, he, he's directed this section in chapter 15 to end this thinking about and talking about the relations between the weak and the strong. He's directed it primarily at the strong. But again, we need to be reminded that when he talks about the strong and the weak, that, that he's not talking about their salvation. Right? He's not talking about their standing before God as if the weak have a weak and... and uh, 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 hard uh, position before God as if they might slip and fall from it. That, that's not what he's saying. He, he's not saying the strong, they have a firm grip on right standing before God. No, anyone, again, who regardless of how strong or weak your faith actually is, if your faith is in Christ, that is what saves you. And so he's not talking about a salvation matter. He's not talking even about standing within the church as if the strong, they are the ones that have a higher stature and standing among the world and in the church. He's not saying that at all. There's not a difference of value or honor. There, there is the strong and weak in terms of the gospel's understanding and its imp- implications being worked out in their lives, specifically in regard to food and drink in chapters 14 and 15. Perhaps you might be here and you might have listened to the last couple along with us and you thought, maybe I'm the weak and I don't even know if I understand what we're talking about with food and drink and and what we're supposed to do or not do. And I just say, don't despair because what Paul is doing here is he's directing a church to make room for you and to actually use their strength for your good. It's good news. In fact, Paul tells the strong not just what to do with their strength, but he directs it specifically. He he himself, verse 1, is going to identify with the strong and direct their strength. Verse 1, he says, we who are strong, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. The strong, they, they are the ones who are to bear with the weak. And he says that they have an obligation. He's used that word before. It's the word he used in chapter 13, verse 8, when he says, we owe it to one another. We owe nothing. We're to owe nothing but love to one another in chapter 13, 8. We owe this. There's an obligation here. And the obligation is to direct their strength at a certain direction. And here's the direction. It's to bear with the failings of the weak. That's what you're to use your strength on. The strong aren't to despise the weak. He's already told us that. They're not to pass judgment on the weak. They're not to put a stumbling block in front of the weak. They're not to flaunt their rights or to be pushy. They're to bear with the failings of the weak. And that word bear with is the same word he uses it a couple different times in, in Galatians when he says we need to bear one another's burdens. Same word. Ma, or Jesus used it in Matthew chapter 18. Chapter 8 verse 17. When he talks about how he has Born our oppression, He's born some things for us. Let me look at the exact reference in Matthew eight seventeen. Says of Jesus that He took our illnesses, He bore our diseases. Same word there. So this word bear, and we talk about this word bearing with the failings. He's talking about putting it on your shoulders, shouldering the burden along with the weak. When we go hiking, one of the things that I don't do is I don't load the kids down with the heaviest pack and then I take the light one. Right? As of now, I'm stronger than them. I don't know how much longer that will last, but like I will Take the burden of the load on myself so that they can walk more freely. And sometimes the burden is going to be them as well. So I might have to carry them up the hill and the trail as well. I'm not going to load them down. And that's what Paul is saying. Strong. That's what you're to do. You're, you're looking at things that are passed around in terms of responsibility and who's going to take what. And the stronger to be like, I, I've got that. So like that. That part is mine because I can go and take it. I can handle it. Now I, I love... Gandalf the Grey, the, the wizard in Lord of the Rings, he, he comes to Frodo when he has to bear this ring all the way to Mordor and he finds out about it. He's, here's what he says to Frodo. The wizard, the strong, coming to Frodo, the hobbit, the weak, he says, I will help you bear this burden as long as it is yours to bear and the strong, that's what we're to say. And, and don't we want to say things like Gandalf? You know, like we get to say things like that. That's what Paul is saying. If you're strong, I, we, the strong, he's saying we are to bear with the failings of the weak. And I love the words there, as long as it's yours to bear. Those are important words. They were important words in the story, right? Whether we go up and over mountains and down deep into the mines, whatever we have to go through, I'm going to bear it as long as I can with you, Frodo. And that's the kind of bearing with the failings of the week that Paul has in mind here for the strong. Not an hour and a half on Sunday. Life together. Walking things out together. Daily life. Deep relationship with one another. So what Paul is speaking about is a community where the strong and the weak actually have fellowship with one another. They're actually around one another. It's not the strong that are off on their own having their own hand-picked community where they don't have to bear with other failings. And we have all sorts of holy ways of making that sound good, but Paul doesn't envision a community that's a Christian community like that at all, that they're together so that they would have to bear these burdens with one another. Because they're there, they're present, they know it, and they're saying, he's saying, strong, you have an obligation in those places where you should be to pick up some of that weight and to bear with the failings of the weak. There'd be no application for these words if the strong and the weak weren't together. If we said, weak, you're going to be kind of put over here until we feel like you graduated up to the strength zone. And, and strong, you guys be over here because we know you guys don't like to be messed with. He doesn't envision that at all. But then being together, and, and that's why these words can apply. But if they're not together, and, and in your own life, if they're not together, then there's a, some sort of problem in your life with how you're walking out life and community. If we're only doing life with... A, handpicked community of the strong, that, that all of a sudden we, we've walked outside of Scripture's uh, desire for our life and community. So whether you're weak or whether you're strong, here's what we need to say. You're, you're welcome here, and you're welcome here together. This isn't the church of the strong. You, this is the church of sinners and, and people who love Jesus. That's what we want to be. We want to have a community like that. All of the weak, strong, wherever you're at, we want to welcome you together. We, we, we have home groups where we kind of try to more deeply develop relationships with one another. And that's where we're going to find out a little bit more where everybody stands on differences of opinions and convictions and conscience and all those kinds of things. And we intentionally don't divide those up based on age or, or life circumstances or anything like that because we want this diverse crowd all jumping into the same room, living life together, strong, weak, wherever you're from, married, not married. We want to all be done together so that we are doing life together. In the midst of diversity, walking life out in community, whether we're strong or weak, because that is the biblical vision of community. And in that community, where strong and weak, are doing life together. The strong, Paul says, are to bear with the failings of the weak. And he continues in verse 1 with these words, And not to please ourselves. One commentator kind of said this happens when when one is, and here's the words he used that I thought were helpful: too much swallowed up with himself. That's a great picture, right? You're so swallowed up with yourself that you're pleasing yourself. That's what he doesn't want for the strong. I I read a book one time where uh, it was about a Navy SEAL, and he was training, and he was uh, doing mountain climbing, and he had this mountain climbing instructor that he was climbing with at the time, and and he was looking up and down and kind of getting a little bit frightened about things. And the, the mountain climbing instructor comes to him like, what are you doing? You know, you, you got to stay in your three-foot world. Like the kind of things around you that you can control, your world that's right here, right now. And don't be worried about anything else. And here's what we can say, that that might be great for mountain climbing and for SEAL training. That does not work for the Christian life. Stay in your own three-foot world is nothing when we put it up to the scripture. It it looks like, hey, that's actually the life of pleasing yourself that that Paul has told us to move away from. Living within your three-foot world, though common, is much too small of a world to live in. That's actually the world that that Christ calls us out of, right? In Mark chapter 8 verse 34, what does Jesus call us to? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not not please yourself, deny yourself. Those are very different. Take up your cross, follow after me. Get out of your three foot world and find a new world. A world of eternal living within relationship with me. That's what he's calling them to. If you're not a believer here this morning, like you need to know that the Christian life, the, the life of following after Jesus, the, the life that we are trying to put up each week in the, from the scriptures is a life that's a life of death to yourself. That is, you're dying to your own desires and wants so that you can be underneath and submitted to God's desires and wills and wants for you in your life. And actually, we think that that's really good news for you. It's good news for Christians, In chapter 8, verse 35, here's what Jesus says. Whoever would save his life would just stay within his three-foot world, and that's all he deals with. What happens? He loses it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will actually save it. Jesus says that because he wants people to be saved. He, He doesn't want them to lose their life in trying to save it. He wants them to lose their life for his sake and so actually save it. He wants them to find life in losing their own, finding life in his. And so Jesus says, you you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Not please yourself, crucify yourself. The, The life of pleasing ourselves is not the Christian life. Strong or weak, or anywhere in between, it's not the Christian life. But the life of pleasing yourself is certainly not the life of the strong, who have, or should be, the ones who have further pursued their own death. Right? The stronger are those who at least have understood the gospel's implications enough to further have pursued dying to self daily, following up to Christ daily, so that they're a little bit further along in that journey. And so in verse 2, Paul says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Don't please yourself. He directs where you're to, to work, to please. It's pleasing your neighbor. Now, we shouldn't get verse 2 mixed up with being a people pleaser people pleasers will do whatever to make another person happy to kind of satisfy them in the moment that is not what paul has in mind we we know that's not what paul has in mind because he opposes peter for people pleasing actions you remember in galatians chapter 2 turn over to galatians 2 for a second and we see where he has to confront peter to his face because peter for fear of a certain crew uh Changes his actions. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And in fear, he moves toward people pleasing. He was scared of them and wanted to please them. And so he withdraws so that he could please them. Where he was willing to walk in a way that was hypocritical to what he said he believed. He was, in what Paul's words were, he was out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't have in mind that when he says, verse 2, you need to please your neighbor. He doesn't have in mind people-pleasing that's out of step with the gospel. He has in mind what we, we people loving, right? Loving them. You owe no one anything but to love them. And, and love, verse, yes, chapter 13, 8, verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. It seeks to please and to build up. So please neighbor here in context is the same thing. It's for their good. It's to build them up. And so when we move from not just, we're not people pleasing, we're trying to be people loving, bearing with their failings for their good, to build them up, we, we can know that, that between people pleasing and that, that's a, there's a different Lord, and there's a different objective than people pleasing. The, the different Lord. People pleasers are those who are controlled by other people, like. Maybe they're controlled by whatever the weak would say. Paul wouldn't want that to happen. That seems to happened in Peter, and he opposed him to his face and says, your, your actions are out of step with the gospel. You don't want to be controlled by other people. That's the wrong Lord. No, the strong are to pursue the upbuilding of others. In chapter 14, verse 19, Paul's already told them, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's what he tells the strong. There's a different objective there. There's a different way of, of being controlled there. The, the control there is, is under the lordship of Christ. And the aim isn't to please the self, but, but to please Christ. And in turn of that, in pleasing a neighbor. And there's a different objective where people pleasers' objective is whatever will please the other. Whatever will please the neighbor. Paul's objective is this. Do what's for their good. Do what will build them up. Do what will be out of love. That is when you have to please neighbor, you're going to have to think like, what do they need? I'm going to have to consider them and their needs. I'm going to have to consider how can I not grieve them as Paul already told us not to do? How can I not put a stumbling block in front of them? How can I sacrifice my rights in order for them to be not grieved or burdened in some undue way? But notice that he does want their good and their upbuilding. So again, Paul doesn't envision the weak just, just skating along and never growing and never changing and everyone just kind of circling life around them. Like, you're going to bring to them what's for their good and upbuilding. So it's not as if this community, if you're weak or strong, that gets stuck where it is. There should be some mutual upbuilding happening and the strong are to help with this. And Paul wants to leave no doubt where, where the strong should direct their strength. It's not to pleasing themselves. It's, it's to... Looking to their neighbor. It's not to people pleasing, but to please their neighbor by doing what's good for them and what will be for their upbuilding. It's not just an option with weaker brothers and failings around. He, he says this is an obligation because the strong are the ones who can take it. There is an old pastor, J.C. Ryle. He was a highly educated man, very cultured and learned style. But he often would minister and preach in rural places. And he realized that they wouldn't understand him in his normal fashion, right? His, as, with his high education and learned style. And so what did he do? Here's what he said. He crucified his style. That's it. That's how you, you're trying to like, let's not please ourselves, but let's see if we can please our neighbor and do what's for their good and to build them up. That's what he does there. And he says, I'll just crucify that style. He directed his strength. He did it to bear with and to build, bear with the failings of the weak and to build them up. And, and so if you're strong, how are you directing your strength? Ryle had to crucify his style. We're going to have to crucify something if we're going to bear with the failings of another. He didn't do what he most wanted to do, I'm guessing, at that time. But he learned to do what was pleasing to his master. And what's pleasing to his master is to say, let's look out for the failings of the weak. And so what does he do? He, he pursues his own death for the good of another. Does that sound like his master? It's not only what Jesus invited us into, daily taking up our cross, pursuing our own death, but that's Paul's call for the strong here as well. I listened to a pastor one time. He was reflecting on 30-something years of ministry and just trying to give out life advice and lessons. And here's one of the things he told us. He said, pursue your death daily. And become one who has low needs and high service. Like That's a, that's a good explanation of the strong. They're, they're those who have pursued their death. And they are pursuing their death daily. And have low needs. So that they can be available for high service. If we want to direct our strength at the weak. If we want to bear with the failings of the weak. And, and do things for their good. And to build them up. Then we're going to need to pursue our death daily. And, and have low needs. And high amounts of service. And, and there's beauty in this that, that while pleasing ourselves is not the goal, daily taking up our cross and, and looking, looking to the needs of others is the, the goal. While, while we're doing that, if you're those who have pursued your death over and over again and, and trying to be submitted to Christ, you, you get more and more pleasure in obeying him. You, you don't find less and less life in dying to self. You actually find more and more life in Christ as you're dying to yourself and you're living for your God and for your neighbor, you find more joy, more life, not less of it. And that's the life that Jesus calls us into. That's the life of following Christ. He's the goal of this life, and he's also the example of this life. So Paul calls the strong not only to direct their strength, but in directing their strength, he's saying, you need to follow the example of Christ. Listen to verse three. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached You fell on me. When we look to the life of Jesus, we know Jesus was the one who came and He he said this. I I didn't come to be served, Mark 10, 45, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And we could just take a tour through the book of Mark, and we could see this everywhere as Jesus walks and ministers. In Mark chapter 1. He heals many, and he has a busy schedule, and yet he gets up early in the morning to go pray, and Peter goes and finds him. He's like, many people are looking for you. What are you doing? He says, actually, we've got to go to Galilee. We've got some other people to meet there. In Mark chapter 3, with the Pharisees already kind of on to him about the way he's doing things, he goes to the synagogue where there's a man with this withered hand, and he knows what they're thinking, and he heals the man on the Sabbath, knowing that they would go after him for it and indeed it's at that time they start plotting his death in mark chapter 4 Jesus has a he has an actually busy life he's he's busy ministering loving and serving and teaching and he's tired and so they get on the sea and he falls asleep on the boat and there's a storm out there which is no problem really for Jesus. He's going to be okay. It's really no problem for the disciples that are in that boat with him but they're so frightened by the storm that they wake him up and what does he do? He, he wakes up to calm the storm. In Mark chapter 5 he goes across the sea to a place that they didn't travel and visit very often to. The, the place of the Gerasenes, and he goes to heal a gathering demoniac. And then in chapter 5, it goes on where he is stopped by Jairus, whose daughter is dying and on her deathbed, and he's hurrying to her side so that he can heal her. And on the way, a woman stops him, and he stops with her, and then he continues on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. In Mark chapter 6, he tells his disciples, why don't you come away with me and rest for a while? go to a desolate place, but people figure out where they are, and they follow him, and he teaches them, even though he was going to rest, he, he teaches them, and then he feeds Five thousand of them that day. In Mark chapter seven, he confronts the Pharisees. This is one of the places where he declares all foods clean. And he confronts them and he tells them like, hey, you have things that are going in and you're worried about that. But what's the problem is your hearts are gushing evil things out. That's really the problem. Then he goes to Tyre and Sidon, another kind of region that's a little bit further out where there's this woman who has this great faith, but has a daughter who has a demon and he heals her. In Mark chapter nine, Jesus, he confronts his own disciples because they're arguing about who is the greatest. And so he confronts them and says, you want to be great, you need to serve all. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem, even though he knows this is going to be the place of his death. He enters Jerusalem. And what does he do when he gets there? He doesn't just settle down and get nice and comfortable. He goes to the temple and he overturns tables. In Mark chapter 12, he takes all kinds of questions, all the best questions of the day that they could throw at Jesus to find reasons to accuse him. He sits there under the assault of their questions and answer, answers question after question with great wisdom. In Mark chapter 14, he washes the disciples' feet. Then he moves into this garden that you kind of infamously known, right? This Garden of Gethsemane experience where he's so in so much turmoil over what's going to happen, these sweating drops of blood. And there he goes to the garden and he prays to his father, not my will, Your will be done in this mysterious moment, just a few moments before he's arrested, betrayed, abandoned, and denied by all of his closest followers. In Mark chapter 15, he's tried, and he makes no defense, even though he probably could have put a stop to this thing in a few different times, saying, hey, actually, all the stuff that they're telling me, you know it's not true. They know it's not true. I'm just gonna tell you it's not true. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give a defense. In Mark chapter 15, he faces the reproaches in full as he's mocked by soldiers beaten by them, taken to Golgotha, stripped, and then his garments are just kind of spread out as if they're a game. He's put on a cross where he, as he is dying, he's mocked even further, and there he dies. And he said before he even went through all of that stuff to Pilate, he said, actually, what you think you're going to take my life, but no one takes my life from me. I'm the one who lays it down on my own accord. And that's what he does. I'm the one that has the authority here, and I'm laying it down on the cross. It's a beautiful description of it in Philippians chapter 2, where it says in verse 6, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does Jesus use his strength for? He uses his strength to pursue the weak. What does he use his strength for? He uses his strength to bear the burdens of others that weren't his own. What does he use his strength for? Not to please himself, but to please his father and to die. Jesus is no people pleaser, but one whose bread was to do the will of his Father. So much so that he could say, I'll do your will even if I have to be a ransom for many. I'll do it. I'll be the ransom. He is not people pleasing, but people loving and seeking the good of others. If Jesus was trying to please himself, there's so much of that story that I just shared in the Gospel of Mark that he would have avoided. But instead he came to seek and save the lost. And he pursued this all the way to death. And that's what Paul reflects on in verse 3. And that's what Paul says is a, should be reflected in the example for the strong. Jesus directed his strength for a purpose. He faced reproaches for the sake of others, for their good, for their building up. And, and Paul says the strong, you're to do that. You're to follow that example, the example of Christ. And part of the strength of this appeal is in its stark contrast with Christ. Christ, the actual strong one, he he didn't please himself when facing the reproaches to the point of death on a cross. And Paul is asking the strong to just direct their strength with the failings of the weak in matters of eating and drinking. You see the difference. It's not a big ask in light of Christ's example. To say, strong, could you just put aside some of your rights of eating and drinking so that you don't put a stumbling block, so that you're not a burden, so that you could work for the good and upbuilding of the weak rather than despising them and judging them? It's also not a big ask because the motivation is there as well. What's the motivation for the strong? It's Christ, it's Him, and it's His example that the strong should know is not something that he just did as an example, but something he did for them the weak. So here's what they're seeing, like Christ's example, the strong one, bearing their burdens, directing his strength for their good and upbuilding, and he, they know that he's done that for me. In that, I have all that I need to bear with the failings of another. So he's their example, and he's their motivation. In chapter 14, verse 15, he's already... Spoken this to them. But he says. If your brother is grieved by what you eat. You're no longer walking in love. And be careful by what you eat. To not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Don't they know the value of the one for whom Christ died. In their own lives. Paul wants them to follow the example of Christ. The one who died. For the good of others. His death. It brought righteousness, it brought them freedom from these burdens of the law that they couldn't fulfill faithfully anyway, it brought them freedom from their guilt and from their sin, but it also brought into their lives the the freedom of the good life in Christ, of following Him and His example where he is the goal and he is the example where strength is used for the good of others for their upbuilding and not just to please ourselves and church we need to ask whether we are on the, wherever we are on the spectrum of strong and weak is that the life we're seeking to live that's the Christ we're following are we following Jesus in this way by pouring out our strength for the good of others for their upbuilding or on the flip side are we demanding or flaunting our rights maybe being pushy or judgmental or despising others or being self-pleasers or people-pleasers. See, if that's the life we're living, then we're following a different example, a serpentine example. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, the, the serpent kind of slithers in and hisses out, like, here's what you need to use your strength for. Get some food and eat it and enjoy it. Please yourself. Or at Babel, they think, hey, we may not need God anymore. We're going to direct our strength at showing everyone how great we are. The serpent, he shows up in the wilderness when Jesus steps onto the scene. He says, use your strength to turn these rocks into bread. That'll be awesome for you. You're hungry. Jesus doesn't use his strength that way. God doesn't want us to use strength that way. He, God, is the one who uses strength for others' good. And that's the way that's open for the strong in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the example of it. He's the goal of it. That those who are in him, again, not to get him, but those who are in him are are those who are being conformed into his likeness. And in response to what he has done, his life, his death, his resurrection, his example, we get to gladly follow him and his example, not to please ourselves, but to do whatever he would want us to do. And here's what he says. Don't please yourselves. Follow the example of Christ. Look to the needs of others. Now, Paul, in verse 3, he quoted Psalm 69. He he did that to encourage and to stir the strong, to follow the example of Christ. But he also, I think, has a bigger and broader point that he draws out. Look at verse 4. After quoting this psalm, just one verse of it, Psalm 69, 9, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Verse 4, Paul, clearly alluding to the Old Testament, calls it Scripture. This is the Word of God, this Old Testament. And he says that it's not as if it doesn't serve a purpose anymore. Like we've moved beyond that. He says, no, it does serve a purpose. It's not like you're in Christ and the Old Testament serves no purpose for you. He does the opposite, actually. And in light of the the broader context, that's a pretty big statement, right? They're struggling, likely, with the minority Jewish population that are Christian in their midst as part of the saints in Rome who are struggling to like thinking that I need to still abstain from from certain foods because that's what the Old Testament dietary restrictions and food laws were. And so it might be easy for Paul to come along here and, and say, you know what, let's just lay aside the Old Testament and then we don't have this argument anymore, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he goes back there. He's going to do it again in chapter 15 many times. And he's going to not only reference it, but apply it. So the way Paul in the New Testament reads the Old Testament is that he reads it as Scripture, authority, right? To hear the Word of God. And with the view that that Old Testament has an intent beyond just the Old Testament, And that actually continues on for believers, so much so that he could say, yeah, that was why it was written. I I love this quote. I actually shortened it. It's going to be long on your screen, but it was so good. I was like, man, I should just read this three pages or whatever to you. But I shortened it. Holy Scripture is not an arid story or ancient chronicle, but the ever-living, eternally youthful word, which God now and always issues to his people. Let me just pause for a second there. When you pick up your Bible, do you think of it like that, as an arid story, an ancient chronicle? Or do you think of it as this eternal, youthful word which he's issuing to us? He continues, it is the eternally ongoing speech of God to us. Scripture was written by the Holy Spirit that it might serve him in guiding the church in the perfecting of the saints, in the building up of the body of Christ. In it, God daily comes to his people. In it, he speaks to his people, not from afar, but from nearby. In it, he reveals himself from day to day to believers in the fullness of his truth and grace. Scripture is the ongoing rapport between heaven and earth, between Christ and his church, between God and his children. It does not just tie us to the past. It binds us to the living living Lord in the heavens. Is that how you read the Old Testament? Is that how you read the book of Psalms when you open it up? Like this is the... Living Lord from the heavens, connected with me, speaking to me. Paul does, and he opens up the Old Testament. He's like, let's let that instruct us. Let's let that give us even some hope here. He goes on to say that the scripture, we think of it as God breathed. That's right. That's good. We need to continue that. But not just God breathed. As we read it, it is God breathing. It's continuing. And that's needed for apparently for the strong and the weak in community, that God would continue to be breathing through his word into their lives. In the New Testament, it's necessary. So not only does the Old Testament instruct, but it encourages Christians to live for Christ, to to live lives like he lived and to have hope. That's what Paul draws out of this quote from the Old Testament. He says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction and that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Think of how the Old Testament, it gives all these promises. There are many of them. Over and over again, there's promises, promises, promises. And think of how in the New Testament, the New Testament gives us not just promises made, it shows us promises kept, and kept, and kept, and kept. It's just on repeat. Promise over here, kept over here. Promise over here, kept over here. That's the kind of thing that will produce hope in a people who trust in the God that wrote those words. And that's what Paul is hoping for. That through these words, you might have hope. Hope. And you might might endure. He says, even through endurance, you might have hope. That that is, through this endurance, walking in obedience. Well, you're holding on to these promises. You're walking in obedience to this God who wrote the scripture, who is in authority over us. You're holding on to these promises, and and you're doing this with encouragement that the Old Testament, lots of things have been said, and lots of things have been kept. So maybe this promise isn't done yet, but I've seen it over and over again that he's made them, he's kept them, and I keep enduring. And he says, through that endurance, through that kind of living, you're going to have hope. Amen. And so Paul looks at psalm 69 he says hey christ did that and that was written for us that we might be instructed there was a promise made and promise kept so that we might be instructed and encouraged and motivated to move forward with endurance and produce this kind of hope in our living that that the strong would keep holding on to so that they might create and work for this gloriously beautiful community with weak brothers all around and so Paul directs their strength, he encourages them to follow Christ's example, to receive hope from the Old Testament, and finally, he just prays for them. In verse 5, he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus. Paul, he, he points to the source and the producer of endurance and encouragement, and it's God. Now, that's interesting. We said some of the same words in verse 4. If you notice, in verse 4, those things, endurance and encouragement, came through Scripture. And in verse 5, they came from God. And there is absolutely no contradiction or problem with that whatsoever. And that matters. That God is the source and the producer of both of those things. And God is the source and producer of those things through His Word. And Paul knows you're going to need encouragement. You're going to need endurance if you're going to walk life out in community with a diverse amount of people there who have all sorts of strengths and weaknesses, all sorts of different consciences and convictions. You're going to need endurance. You're going to need encouragement. He knows that from experience. And so he also just goes before them and he asks God for that. He says, may God, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. He wants them to live in harmony. He, he exhorts them for this very purpose. Right? He's already said it in chapter 12. He wants them to live in harmony with one another. He actually repeats that same phrase in a couple different other places. Like he repeatedly exhorts for the church to have unity, to live in harmony with one another. But he never envisions this harmony or unity to be a unity of uniformity. He expects it to be a harmony within this diversity, a unity of strong and the weak living and walking out life together. He exhorts them for that very purpose. But he also knows that God is the one who must grant that harmony and that unity. So he exhorts them for it and he prays for it knowing that that's what's necessary in order to accomplish it. You need to live in harmony with one another. God, give them harmony with one another. Now, I think there's hardly... Maybe, maybe there's not one single thing that you could do to better improve your prayer life right now, today, than to just start praying the prayers that Paul has prayed. So let's just ask, like, are we, is this a prayer of ours? We dwell together, we live together, we're trying to do life, we're sojourning together, this needs to be one of our prayers. God, grant us endurance and encouragement that we might live in harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. We should strive for unity, but we should pray for the same kind of unity as well. Strive for it. Walk out the commands that he's given here. Pray for us. Pray for it on your own. Pray for it when you get together. That's what Paul does. And the end that Paul has been exhorting them for, and the end that he's actually praying for, Is given in verse 5 and 6. He says he wants them to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it is so noteworthy here that the end for which he's been writing for and that he prays for, notice what it is. It's not unity. One commentator says that according to this verse, the purpose of our unity is not so that the church might be a pleasant place to be, or that weak Christians might be encouraged and strong Christians might be channeled into useful work. Rather, it is that God might be glorified. So everything, whether you eat or drink, abstaining or not, you're strong or weak, everything is to fall under this, like that we're doing everything for the glory of God. That's what it's all been about all along, that the unity that Paul desires, that he exhorts them for, that he prays for, is a unity that's not ultimately for unity's sake. It's a unity for the sake of God's glory. That's what he's actually after in their unity. He wants them to have this movement, all of them, be moving toward living in harmony with one another, this movement toward unity. But in moving toward unity, he doesn't want their eyes fixed and primarily on community itself. He wants them fixed on something bigger and better. He wants them fixed on the glory of God. He doesn't want them to have unity for unity's sake. He doesn't want them to have unity so that they might have peace among them. He doesn't want them to have unity so the strong and weak can kind of be together and all be comfortable together. He wants them to have unity so that God might be glorified. And that's a unity that is experienced in the midst of many because there's no envisioning from Paul from the scriptures at all that we're doing life alone without a diverse crowd among us that's experienced in a life of many and expressed as one so the, the unity he says that he talks about here is a unity that's experienced in the midst of many and a great diversity and expressed as one notice those two words he gives here one voice one voice there are many voices but he wants them to be one voice and then it's a voice that is actually expressed. That's Paul's great hope and prayer for the Christians in Rome, that they would have unity. That's, that's something that's an internal reality that we are all trusting in Christ and we're with others who are trusting in Christ. But he wants that unity to be expressed. It's a unity that's in their heart overflowing into their voices so that they together can, with one voice, give glory to God. He he doesn't envision that the differences that they have in their community have all of a sudden vanished. He he doesn't envision that, that all of their distinctions have gone away or that their diversity is diminished. But what he does envision is that in the midst of all of that, they can still be together and still proclaim the greatness and the glory of God with one voice. He knows God can grant that kind of unity and harmony in the midst of all of their diversity for the sake of his glory. And that's the vision of the church. That's what we live for. It's a captivating vision. Right? One that Christ prayed for himself. One that he died for and rose for. One that he intercedes for and even now at the right hand of the Father empowers in his people. The church's worship with one voice as a diverse community, together glorifying God. What that is, is a reverberation of heaven. Amen. Right, concerts end. Or artists, you could go to many concerts, but artists eventually are gonna, they're gonna know the end of their career. Fan bases are gonna come and go, right? You're good and then fan bases are strong and then you get worse and they die away. Businesses and offices can go out of business, can move around, can have different missions, can change trajectories. Homes can, can fill and empty, but the church remains. And what the church is doing here is we're with one voice proclaiming the glory of God together is we're just sounding a song on earth that's already going on and will be going on in heaven. And we should reverberate in our unity In our life together, in our practices, in our voices, may glory be given to God. One way we can do that, church, is that we're stating something when we take the Lord's Supper together. We're saying, I'm with these people, and we're also saying, but ultimately, I'm with Christ. We're all with one voice saying, it's all because of him that I have a place, and it's all because of him I have a place with these people. And so if you're a Christian, you're saying Christ is everything to me, would you say with other Christians in this meal that Christ is everything to us? That's a meal of unity and it's a meal of unity together. That there's a diversity. There's, we look different. We're going to walk up here different. Like, but there's unity here. Christ is enough for us. He is the one who bled so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He is the one whose uh, body was broken so that ours could be made whole. He is the one who has come and will come again. There are promises made, and those promises will be kept one day. And so we take this meal together, proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, come with faith and joy and take this meal with other Christians. If you're not a Christian, don't take this meal. Instead, we want you to trust in Jesus, repent of your sins, and believe in him, and, and we can talk to you what it looks like to, to follow after Christ and take this meal maybe next time. Maybe grab a, another Christian, ask What does it mean to follow Jesus? How am I supposed to die to myself and and see if they can't put you in the right direction or come talk to one of us? We'd love to talk to you about it. But don't take this meal. This is a meal for family, it's a meal for believers who are all saying together with one voice Jesus is everything to us. Let's pray.
2: Let's pray. Father, it's, it's very clear what you're instructing us to do, it makes sense, it's straightforward, we understand it, and yet, Lord, we are so inclined to leave this place today and not seek to practice what we've heard. It's just really easy, Lord, to live in our three-foot worlds. Our flesh is served so well in this day and age. We can handpick those things that entertain us, that comfort us, that gratify us, Lord. We can have everything our own way. And we develop strong opinions and preferences, Lord, things that really don't matter and we make those things hills to die on, and we injure each other, and we make the weak weaker, and we even weaken the strong. And Lord, we, we know this. We are confronted with it through your word. We have been this morning, and God, I just pray that you help us to, to self-assess, to look at our our lives to not just try to see those things where maybe we have victory that we wouldn't just try to, to make ourselves feel better and, and trying to find those ways in which we serve the weak or which we put ourselves off. But Lord, help us to see those those blind spots in our lives. Help us to see those things that that have hamstrung us, that have been used um, even by our enemy to to hurt each other. God. Help us to just repent. There's a reason why Paul spends so much time on this topic. It's, it was a problem then, and it's a problem today. And God, we need your wisdom and your guidance. We need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to show us where we are weak, and then where we also can help those around us who are weak. And Lord, we're encouraged to know that, that your word is alive. And that it always stands ready to instruct us and to show us it is a lamp unto our feet. Your spirit lives in us, Lord, to give us the strength and the power to walk in obedience when we do see what is true. So we're not helpless, Lord. We are not stuck. We just need faith, Lord. We need you to make our eyes clear and to give us motivation, Lord, to want to walk in obedience. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want this body of believers to be more united than it is. That our testimony of love towards one another would be a bright light in this city. That people would see our love for each other, our love for you, and and they they would want that. That they would see how we minister to one another. That they would desire that, Lord. So God, help us to bring you glory in how we live life. It's in Christ's name, amen.